I believe that if you're not passionate, you know, no matter how hardworking you are, you're going to hit a roadblock and, and that's going to be a defining moment. Welcome to From the Dorm Room to the Boardroom, a podcast where we provide insights, tips, and inspiration for college students and young professionals so they can make a really successful transition from college life to the professional world and beyond. My name is Andy Malinsky, and I'm your host. I'm also a professor of organizational behavior and international management at Brandeis University's International Business School, where we record and produce this podcast. Today's guest is Yusuf Albanawi, who's the co-founder and CEO of Haleev, a digital health company that helps patients, care providers, and payers prevent the long-term costs associated with opioid abuse and addiction. After struggling with substance abuse at a young age, Yusuf was able to recover from an early intervention from a loved one. And since then, he's been working on the front lines of the addiction crisis that's taken over 70,000 lives last year. Uh, He's a Forbes 30 under 30 social entrepreneur, a Halcyon fellow, a social entrepreneurship Uh, at a social entrepreneurship incubator based in DC. He's a passionate public speaker. He's been on the TED stage. He's an avid runner, cyclist, painter, a bit of a Renaissance man. Uh, He speaks um, English, Arabic, and Spanish. And Yusuf graduated from Wake Forest uh, in 2017 uh, with honors in communication and a minor in entrepreneurship. I could say more, but I'd love I think people want to hear hear from you. So Yusuf, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Andy. And uh, it's really a pleasure to be here. And thanks for hyping me up. I hope I can live up to, to that expectation. But it, it, it's, it's, uh, it's an honor for me to be here and really excited to dive in, diving into uh, some of the topics that we're going to cover today. So I should tell you and I should tell listeners that, that I found you through Ronit Avni, who was another one of our podcast guests, and she highly recommended you not, not to put any pressure. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Renit's an awesome uh, and a, such a talented entrepreneur, and uh, we actually are uh, fellows at the same uh, organization, which is Halcyon in DC. And uh, you know, we automatically clicked uh, the minute we met. And you know, I'm actually you know honored that she that she referred me to you. So no pressure there. I'll make sure to cover all the essentials today. <laughs> so tell it. Uh, tell us about Pelief. What what is what is the company? Uh, what does it do? Uh, just tell us a little bit about it. So, really, we're addressing one of the largest healthcare issues that is facing America. Frankly, has ever faced uh, the U.S. and and you know the region as a whole. You know, as as you mentioned earlier, it, it, last year it took over seventy thousand lives, people that we know, and you know we know that one out of every three. Uh, American has something to do with this addiction crisis, you know, whether it's a loved one, a friend, a family member. So it, it hits home. Uh, it hits home to many, but especially myself. You know, growing up uh, as a teenager, it was uh, it was something that affected me personally. And um, you know, we grow up with confined environments and stigmas that surround us, and one of which is is addiction. That's something I realized later down the line while I was working at a rehab center, but that was uh, way later. So, uh, you know, for, for us, addiction is very personal. And, and what we wanted to do is prevent it from ever surfacing. We have a lot of 
solutions around treatment, recovery. But when it comes to prevention, what we really are left with is, you know, educational campaigns, ads that, you know, we've all seen, especially recently with the vaping uh, boom. But when it comes to medical devices and new technologies, uh, for the last few decades, we really didn't have a lot there. Uh, and when we take a, a step closer and really look at how opioids, prescription opioids are packaged at pharmacies and, and, uh, and uh, at pharmacies, it's, it's truly, uh, it's outdated, but also it, the use case behind it is, is, is flawed. You know, these are controlled drugs that if they get into the wrong hands can have the same effects as heroin. Uh, not, not a lot of people know this, but, you know, prescription opioids are from the same pharmacological base as, as heroin and fentanyl for that matter. So how can we create better and safer packaging tools for these drugs is really at the core of our technology. Uh, so we, we created a smart, secure pill bottle that monitors and controls prescription opioid use at the point of intake. So instead of patients receiving their prescription opioids in a in normal Rx, you know, the transparent orange bottle that we're so accustomed to, they'll receive it in ours. And every time they need a pill, they go on our app, log in, and that verifies that it's a patient and not someone else because um, that's a huge cost to addiction, diversion. And after doing that, we ask them a few questions on their pain level and their mood to assess how they're doing overall. And uh, at a push of a button, they can dispense one pill. We take that data and then uh, package it and provide it back to physicians or care providers through the electronic health records so that they have oversight. And if a patient is taking too much or maybe at risk, we can intervene before it's too late. And we're not really reinventing the wheel there. Early intervention, at least in my case, was successful. And, and in so many other cases, the ROIs there are, are tremendous. Uh, for every dollar spent on early intervention services, you know, the government could see over $10 in return. So it's, it's something that we really believe in. And uh, it's something that's very, very important uh, today. Really interesting. So, so I want to hear more about it, but I want to kind of rewind here and learn a bit about your background and how you got into this. So, so tell us about, uh, we know you went to Wake Forest, so tell us about college. But actually before that, where are, you, where are you from originally? Were you born and raised in the United States? Did you come to the United States from somewhere else? And then talk about your college experience. Actually an immigrant founder and uh, I came to the US uh, for college. So I moved I started actually in New Hampshire and then made my way down to North Carolina. So, you know, I've seen, I've seen most of the Northeast and, and, uh, and the South, and, and that's been a, an amazing experience. Uh, but uh, moved from Saudi Arabia when I was about 17. And, uh, you know, that was a huge culture, uh, culture shift, of course. But, you know, both my parents actually, you know, went to school in the U.S. My mom studied at uh, UCSB in, in California and my dad uh, in Texas at Rice. So, you know, I grew up in an environment where, where college was almost necessary. I, you know, I didn't have a choice there, but, um, you know, for the right reasons. And so moved, moved for college and, and really began, uh, you know, my uh, entrepreneurial career at Wake Forest. Uh, that was where, you know, things started to open up. But, you know, it, it, it's, it's interesting because the, the shift between, you know, growing up in the Middle East and then coming to the U.S., it, it's a jump. Uh, but I believe that part of that is getting out of your comfort zone and, and, you know, learning how to adapt to new situations, which in just a bit we'll dive into. But, you know, yeah, Wake Forest was, was a, was a great launch pad, uh, for so many reasons. 
you know, mainly the school was uh, very centered around uh, liberal arts. And uh, that's something that my, my father is, is a big advocate of. So, uh, you know, growing up in, in that environment definitely shaped me today. Uh, you know, personally, I never had uh, expectations of what I should do or what, what I can do. And that limitless mentality is, I believe, very conducive to, you know, not only career readiness, but also your, finding your passion, which is something that we all hear of, but uh, is, is very elusive, unfortunately. So Wake Forest was, was, was well suited for that. And, you know, I never came in with expectations of what I wanted to do. From the get-go, I was very open about it. And I accepted the fact that, you know, I have no idea what I wanted to do. And, and that actually opened me up to a lot of new experiences. At first, I thought that I was not focused. I was taking a bunch of courses. I started as a political science student and, you know, made my way until sophomore year, just taking classes in poli-sci. But, but in the meantime, you know, minored in math, you know, took a comp-sci course, you know, took a few arts. Uh, that's why I'm, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a passionate painter because I actually took a few art courses in college and learned that this is something that I wouldn't necessarily want to do in the future, but it was a hobby of mine that I, you know, wanted to keep. So just taking a variety of courses at the beginning made me, you know, more aware of what I was good at, but also what I liked, which I believe is a really important thing to know in the, in the, while you're at college, you know, what's, I don't think the expectation is you have to find your passion because I don't, I, I think that's very rare, but, but what you really want to start looking at is what am I, what am I good at and what do I enjoy? Uh, I think the money will follow later. So, so you may, so, so it's really interesting. You, it, it looks like you, you know, you, um, you ate, you ate from the buffet of different courses, right? You had uh, you had political science and, and, and painting, and it looks like you ended up with an honors in communication and entrepreneurship. You graduated in 2017 you know, what were your thoughts uh, senior year? What were you thinking of doing? When did Polyve emerge in, in your mind? Just tell us about that, that time and how you transitioned from college to the, to the professional world. You know, Polyve came later. Polyve came senior year. Uh, and I was kind of on the verge of uh, deciding between political science and communication. You know, I, I knew that at the end of the day, I had to I had to choose a major. For me, it was honestly a formality. Uh, I'd already taken a bunch of courses and, and knew that, uh, you know, at the very least, I'll, I'll graduate with a few minors because of just all the courses that I ended up taking, the variety of courses that I ended up taking. So I, I honestly chose communication for a few things. First, it, it was a formality. I was like, I, I have to graduate with something. And then the second thing is, is I actually really enjoyed just communication in general. Uh, what I meant by that is, is not necessarily advertising and mark, the marketing side of it, but actually the writing piece of it, the you know, public speaking, uh, debating. That was something that I really enjoyed and, uh, and actually helped me, helped me a lot uh, as I began to work on Believe because you know, there's a huge requirement there for you to be able to pitch coherently. Um, and I actually have a, a funny story to tell you in just a bit about that. But, you know, Really did well in communication and and was able, as you said, to graduate with honors because I, honestly I liked it, I enjoyed it, and uh, and I was good at it. So kind of it met it met those it had that ingredients there, and and that was really important for me. Senior year, halfway through my senior year, I started taking entrepreneurship courses because uh, there was one professor that kind of was really interesting. She she was a 
it was more of a creative course. So it was really an entrepreneurship course in the sense of like, uh, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, we weren't really covering a lot of the business, uh, topics around entrepreneurship, uh, or the financial areas of entrepreneurship. It was more about great creativity. And she was a painter, a dancer, uh, did a bunch of things. And, and it was, it was more about understanding how, how, how could we tap into our creative minds and, and, and it's all about the aha moment. And I was actually reading this really interesting article on Medium just a few hours ago about finding that aha moment. And uh, a lot of it has to do with being mindful and, you know, practicing, you know, going out of your, your daily routine, but at the same time being mindful about what problem you wanted to solve. So started dabbling there. And, and, and part of the course was basically trying to iterate uh, and solve new problems. So, you know, that was kind of the birthplace of, of my career in entrepreneurship. I never wanted, you know, never expected myself to be an entrepreneur in the typical sense. Uh, cause I, I think that there's a, there's a, entrepreneurship has been dramatized or romanticized over, over the last decade. Uh, and, and I never really thought of myself as fitting into that norm. So I really saw myself as, as being more of a, of a social entrepreneur in the sense that I, I, I was gravitated towards social issues. Uh, interned at a few companies during my junior and, and uh, sophomore year around social impact and how can, how can we create better programs to address them. So that was already something that I developed uh, in college. I was really passionate about that. So halfway through my senior year, I started working at a rehab clinic uh, just outside of Winston-Salem. And, and that's where I was uh, exposed to the growing opioid crisis. And uh, at first, it was just volunteer work pure volunteer work that one of my entrepreneurship professors actually recommended uh, us doing in one of our courses. And I just gravitated towards that. And I remember I would go, go there every Tuesday at 5 p.m., uh, walk in and just sit down on, uh, on, on uh, you know, there, there were events around loved ones and, and uh, those that were addicted. And, and it was just an open conversation, open dialogue. And, and that hit home to me uh, because that's something that I did struggle with. And I was very lucky to have been in that situation, sitting in that room as a as an outsider, almost uh, observer, so to speak, and just listening in and, and seeing how those family members and, and loved ones were affected by it, and that just just you know that was it. <laughs> I just felt that this is something that I I needed to do, and I, at first we didn't have a solution per se, but it but it was a problem that I that I wanted to solve. Yeah, so you discovered you discovered a focus there. That's 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 that sounds very impactful. And I, be- before we get to how you sort of realized that focus and sort of put all the pieces together, I just want to ask you one quick question about about your liberal arts education. You said that your 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 parents were proponents of liberal arts. I know I, I don't know much about education in Saudi Arabia. I, I know I know quite a bit about education in Europe uh, or you know outside the United States. And I know. I know that the sort of focus on liberal arts and on sort of dabbling in multiple disciplines and expanding your mind in various ways is a, um, is, is a little bit different from how education uh, works in Europe, for instance, where you focus much more deeply, much more earlier. You came to the U.S. Uh, and you sort of dabbled uh, in a way, and you've really come out in a you know sort of with a very interesting focus. Do you have any comment on liberal liberal arts, having just lived through it? That's a really good point. I would say that the, the Saudi system actually mirrors the the European system in, in the, what you're talking about is essentially vocational uh, vocational school, vocational training. 
I believe there's a great importance there. And, uh, you know, looking at it from the Saudi perspective, I, I believe we definitely need more uh, of uh, vocational training because we have, uh, uh, you know, a gap in terms of workplace readiness. There's just, there's a lot of unemployment there and we need people to fill in jobs, necessary jobs. You know, these are not jobs that like, you know, are really impactful, but you know, they're impactful if they all come together, right? So for me, I, I, I definitely stuck to the American system because I believe that uh, that's more of an American concept, the liberal arts system. And, uh, you know, I, I think there are two approaches there. I think one of them is, is more of a personality trait. Some people are just more, uh, more open to risks in the sense that th they want to learn new experiences. They want to go through new experiences and don't want to go through the beaten path. So I think that's more of a personality trait. But at the same time, there are societal expectations, whether you're in the US or in Europe, where you're, you grow up in, a, in an environment that uh, requires you to do X. Uh, that could be, uh, you know, law, medicine, you know, whatever it is, th those societal expectations, I believe, are, um, can affect us either for the worse or for the better. And, 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 you know, I think I definitely grew up in an environment where there weren't a lot of expectations on me. And I think I was lucky in that sense. So that's one thing that I, I would definitely recommend uh, for, you know, uh, college students, uh, especially uh, that are in college right now trying to find themselves is uh, try to, you know, not necessarily get rid of that. You know, there are a lot of things that, you know, that parents actually, you know, they have more experience in, they lived life. So there are a lot of things that, that you know, they, a lot of important things there. But at the same time, I, I, I believe that you need to venture off to a certain degree to uh, find what you, what you really enjoy doing and what you're actually good at. So, you know, what you, what you expect you, you know, you're going to do when you're in high school is very different to uh, when you actually start getting into college and, 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 uh, and, and then so on. So I think that you, to a certain degree, you have to get rid of those expectations to find yourself. And that's more of a mindset shift rather than a technical skill that you can learn. Right. Interesting. Get rid of the expectations to find yourself. I like that. So how did you put the pieces together to, to, to start to leave? That's where we left off. And that, I think that I'd like to hear about that, how, how it came together. You know, when I was volunteering at the rehab center, I realized that I realized two things. First, that I was, you know, lucky to receive that early intervention. And so how do you break that down? Right. You know, uh, how do you intervene early? And a lot of it has to do with information which is data, right? It, it, you know, if you have the right information at the right time, then, you know, you're more empowered. You can at least make, uh, make a certain decision. Uh, and, and, and what I realized at the clinic was that a lot of these loved ones and family members didn't have that information. Uh, these patients kind of slipped through the cracks, so to speak. So, you know, they'd only, they found out way too late, years too late. And, uh, made me realize that there's a huge gap there. You know, why is it that family members, loved ones, doctors, whoever's involved, why are they finding out, you know, a year, two, three years after that patient's already addicted? And it's almost like cancer screening. We have a lot of tools today that, you know, allow doctors to do that remotely. So, you know, why don't we have those same tools uh, for addiction? And, and, you know, we, we, we know that there's a lot of reasons why that that doesn't exist. It's a lot of it has to do with stigmas. Uh, addiction just recently became it was labeled as a disease. So prior to that, you know, if it's not labeled as a disease, then the healthcare industry is probably not going to focus on it. 
So that was one piece of it. And then the second piece is, you know, systematic changes that, that uh, led to the opioid crisis. Uh, pharmaceutical companies manufactured a lot of drugs um, uh, during that decade. So, and then, you know, government only caught up very late, late into, into, into that. So, so that basically made me realize that there's a huge gap. And uh, how do we solve that gap is uh, recreate what uh, patients use when it comes to uh, their opioids. You know, why is it that when a patient takes a pill, no one knows, you know, why is it when someone breaks into a medical cabinet, they can just open up a bottle and, and you know, take whatever pills out of it. And uh, just also seeing that uh, within college, you know, I know that there's a huge crisis when it comes to stimulants. Adderall and other drugs are used very, very frequently there. And it's part of the culture. Uh, and a lot of it actually starts from friends and families. They uh, hand it out to friends, sell it. So, so that, that, that basically started uh, the foundation of Believe. And I met my co-founder about two years ago, a bit more than two years ago, actually, to date. And, and uh, 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 Gotham was, was at Duke University. So we were neighbors, but we, uh, we never knew each other until we graduated. And uh, that was a big piece of it. it. You know, when starting a company, you, you have to have the right team. And, uh, and that it may, it may sound easy, uh, or, you know, straightforward. It's actually not, uh, it takes a lot of trial and error, a lot of learning, a lot of trust. Uh, so that's the biggest piece of, of, uh, of believe it's actually the team and the people behind it. So, um, one one last question about the founding of Believe, and then I want to hear some some advice that you might have for for people listening. Tell us just a little bit about how you actually came up with the idea for a company. Is it something, for example, is it something that was kicking around in your mind for a while, and you had a vague idea, and then you had conversations with your co-founder or with someone else, and it sort of came into focus, or was it an aha moment where you, as you said, got into that sort of mindful mind space and you know, had been thinking about this this problem that you noticed in the clinic, and 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 there was some sort of aha moment, this vision or something like that. Like, just can you just dig a little bit into the process for people? It's interesting because there's definitely an aha moment, right? But that aha moment, as you said, is very vague. Uh, it's 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 a uh, it's 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 a thought. It's an idea. So that that definitely existed during my experiences at the clinic, and and. Uh, just working in the space but you know after that that's that's where the fun begins right that's where you know things actually uh that's that's what i believe is is the is the important ingredient in starting uh, uh starting and, and not only starting scaling a company so uh, you know when i met my co-founder his background in biomedical electrical engineering also has a passion for addiction so working together through the product iter- iterating on it um, understanding it more was a whole year in its making. So to give you a perspective, came up with idea January of 2017. Uh, we only started working on it, actually iterating on the product late 2017. So it, it took us uh, at least nine months. And during that process, it's what you know, entrepreneurs and enthusiasts called customer discovery. It's on, on, not only understanding the problem, but, but also figuring out who's, who's a part of the problem. Uh, you know, how do physicians talk about it? How do patients talk about it? How do loved ones talk about it? And, and, and that is essential. You can have an idea, but uh, if you don't have a business model behind it, if you don't have, you know, a, a path to, to actually commercializing it, it's simply just an idea. 
So uh, there are two pieces of it, two pieces of, of, the, of the puzzle. Hmm, interesting. Now, and so now, from where you stand, uh, what what misconceptions do you do you think college students might have about sort of entering the workplace, or in your case, starting something up? Uh, what what misconceptions do college students have? You've 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 you're sort of you've just been there. <laughs> Yeah, no. So I'll give you two, two, two of my, uh, two of my thoughts on on it. I'll, I'll provide you with a kind of a, a misconception on entrepreneurship, and then a misconception on uh, on early employment, because uh, we just hired uh, actually about ten interns this summer. So we we this is all fresh. In terms of entrepreneurship, there, there's a big misconception around the the how how sexy the space is. You know, to be completely frank, it's 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 very very challenging and that's where passion comes into play i believe that if you're not passionate you know no matter how hard working you are you're going to hit a roadblock and and that's going to be the defining moment so uh we're, we're we're you know very accustomed to to you know social media instagram uh you know pages that that advocate entrepreneurship and make it seem like it's uh, something that anyone can do. Of course, anyone can do it, but you really need to be really need to be driven and need to dedicate uh, a lot of time and a lot of focus and 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 also be open to failure. Which leads me to my second point around uh, uh, you know uh, you know what what misconceptions exist when it comes to the workplace is you know straight out of college you probably have an idea of what you want to do. But in reality, when you first when you start your first job, it's probably not going to live up to its expectations. So you come in with a lot of expectations. You probably think that your employer is going to give you a lot of ownership over tasks. They're going to give you a lot of freedom. But that's actually rarely the case. There's a lot of not necessarily trivial work, but you know, administrative work that early employees have to do, and uh, and and that's something that you you have to be open to. And, uh, for example, we, you know, we hired, uh, some interns this summer. And of course, there were a lot of important tasks that we had to get done, but trust is a very important thing to develop with early, uh, employees. So it's very rare to, for, for, for an employer to just hand you this huge project right out of college and tell you, all right, get going on this. Part of that is really developing your soft skills and, and being open to failure, not necessarily like, you know, big failures that are going to cost the company. No, but small failures so that you can start training your brain. I believe it's like a muscle. And the more you're open to, you know, new challenges and overcoming it, the more ownership you're going to get. Because at the end of the day, you know, it, it, it's it's very rare that, that someone straight out of college is going to get this huge project and, and work on it. You have to uh, expect to start from somewhere and then work your way out. Uh, and I believe working your way out requires you to develop your soft skills. And, and, you know, we always hear about soft skills, but to give you a perspective, at least what we look at is uh, problem solvers. So can this person uh, take this assignment and run with it uh, for a week or two, you know, without, our, without us holding their hands, so to speak? Of course, come back and, you know, ask for advice and, and insights. But, you know, employers are, are definitely going to expect you if they're going to give you a huge project to run with it. And for you to run with it, you need to be open to uh, failure and, and for that you need to be able to problem solve so it, it, it's something that i believe that's very very necessary in this day and age so problem solving taking the initiative and so on do you learn that in college uh what's what are what are some of the um gaps or differences that you think 
there are between college and just this sort of cusp of the professional world that maybe make it hard for some people to make this transition? I don't think in, in traditional colleges, uh, especially those that prioritize grades, I don't, I don't think you get a lot of that, just to be completely honest, because you're graded on a scale, right? And expectation is you try to hit the A, A minus to graduate with a solid GPA. And, and by the way, I fell victim to that. You know, I graduated with honors and I put a lot of time on schoolwork. But at the same time, I, I, I definitely took the initiative, especially senior year, to plug myself into organizations. I was a director at TEDx. I was an, an inaugural member at the Deacon Springboard, which was a, a, an entrepreneurship incubator. I've, I, took, I did a lot of volunteer work. So, you know, t- going outside the classroom and actually working with re- normal people uh, actually beginning to develop relationships outside of college with people that are in the workplace is going to open up your mind and you're going to get a sneak preview of what to expect. Uh, you know, when I started volunteering, I literally spent hours just gathering data from loved ones. And someone could view this as trivial work, but it's necessary work. I didn't expect them to just hand me a huge assignment and tell me, all right, you're tasked with, uh, you know, restructuring our, our addiction program. <laughs> you know, although it would be amazing to have on my resume, uh, you know, I, I, it's, it's not realistic. So I think college, uh, a traditional college, uh, especially when you're pursuing careers in law and medicine, you know, for the right reasons, require you to maximize on grades. And, and if you're maximizing on grades, you're probably less likely to take risks, right? Because if you take a risk, you're, you're risking the, the A, A minus, right? And and that's going to affect your overall uh, chances of getting into a good school. So I, I believe that you have to take risks. I'll give you an example. When I first, when I was part of the Deacon Springboard, it was um, an in-house incubator at Wake Forest. It was the first of its kind. And I worked on this idea at college with a few other college friends. So that was my first neat preview of, of, uh, of kind of starting a company. And it was, uh, it was a whole different idea that I worked on. But Essentially, I, I was tasked with basically pitching the company. And I remember that day very clearly. It was a Tuesday night uh, at 7 p.m. And they invited all the, the uh, most of the board of directors at, at Wake Forest and the ones that started this program. And, you know, there was a lot of expectations for me to come, you know, go in and, and really do a good job there. But to be completely honest, I choked. <laughs> I, I, I went on stage and I forgot my lines and uh, nothing was coming out. Luckily, one of my partners jumped in and and uh, and took it on so that was very lucky to have him but i i bombed i failed and honestly i could have dwelled on it and, and you know and, and and sat and told myself that this is nothing this is not something that i should do clearly i'm not good at it i went back to the drawing board i figured out what i did wrong and and you know went back and went back and and, and did it again it was not perfect but that the next time i stumbled on a few words but i didn't choke and just kept on doing it so for you to really, really develop yourself and actually figure out what you really want to do, you have to take risks. You know, I, I don't expect college students to, you know, drop everything on, on their plate to try something completely new, but dabble with a few things and, and see where that takes you. Yeah, really. It's great advice. It's actually, it reminds me of um, work uh, that academics talk about, about a growth or a learning mindset and the fact that you have a learning mindset and that failure is just, I mean, obviously it feels bad, but it's in some ways it's data for improvement. You know, if you can think of it that way, 
you know, then you're able to take risks, develop and grow more readily. So really, yeah, really interesting stuff. So, so we're at the end of our chat here, lots of wisdom in this interview. And I want to thank you so much for being our guest. How, how can listeners find out more about you or about Believe if they're interested? Well, thanks, Andrew. It was honestly a pleasure being here. And, uh, we, you know, we, we, we actually live and grow by, by, by our community. So, uh, one quick way to learn more is to go on our website, uh, com, And, um, there's a way to subscribe to our website to get all our latest updates. Uh, there's a lot of new, exciting things in the pipeline for us. So you'll be able to get that in, in, uh, in real time. So that's one quick way. Follow us on social media. Our Instagram handle is Believe Community. And on Twitter, it's Believe One. Don't ask why the one exists. There's some Believe account that apparently is, uh, is active, but we're, we're trying to figure that out. But follow us on social media. We'd love to hear from you and uh, share your story. There's a way for you to do that on our, on our website. We believe that for us to really do the work that we, we need to do, we need to start destigmatizing what addiction is, how it starts. And it starts with all of your stories. And that's, that's at least how it started. So we want to make sure we take that into account. Great. And we'll, we'll include those links in our show notes as well. Thanks, thanks so much uh, for, for uh, speaking with me today. Thanks, Andy. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to From the Dorm Room to the Boardroom. If you're interested in learning more about the work that I do and helping people step outside their comfort zones and transition successfully into the professional world, please visit my website, www.andymolinsky.com. That's A-N-D-Y-M-O-L-I-N-S-K-Y.com. And also feel free to email me directly at Andy at andymolinsky.com with any feedback or ideas for guests for future podcasts. This podcast is brought to you by Brandeis University's International Business School. By teaching rigorous business, finance, and economics, connecting students to best practices and immersing them in international experiences, Brandeis International Business School prepares exceptional individuals from around the globe to become principled professionals in companies and public institutions worldwide. Thank you so much for listening.